All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian, Word, Sacrament, and Ministry. We are finishing up, or have just recently finished up, the ministry component of the text. We did talk um, through the remainder of page 38, right? We did Sirach with the wisdom of the scribe and the necessity of leisure and all of that. Sound familiar, ringing a bell? Okay, very good. So then today we're off into part two, the word and the sacraments. And we're going to be looking at the Holy Scripture and the connection then with the ancient or small c Catholic faith. We begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. On page 39, part 2, the word and the sacraments. And first looking at the Word of God, and question 34 is posed this way. Which doctrine then, or which word, ought a minister set before the Church of God? Answer, neither his dreams, nor the visions of his heart, or whatever seemed good or right to him. Also, not human traditions or ordinances, but let him who teaches in the church teach the word of God, so that the heart of the ministry is and remains this. Now, quoting Isaiah 59, 21, I have put my words in your mouth. And as Augustine aptly says, let us not hear in the church I say this, you say this, he says that, but thus says the Lord. Okay, so a wonderfully refreshing and foundational statement that it is the word of God that is going to be proclaimed. Now, as we move along, there's nothing wrong, let's say, in a sermon with quoting church fathers to buttress your point or to draw that threefold line between or three-point line between what the scriptures say, what the church has said, and what I'm saying. Chemnitz isn't precluding any of that at this point. But what he is doing is, with laser focus, drawing our attention to the fact that it is the word of the Lord that is to be proclaimed in the Lord's church. That always at the very heart and at the very center. And of course we can... (laughs) Even I heard by the chuckles, we can identify when pastors or preachers preach their dreams or the visions of their heart or whatever seemed good and right to them. Uh, And very often the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. There's very little word of God and very much of their own witticisms. Okay. Anything you want to add or comment on that paragraph? All right, then, on to 35. What is the Word of God? And I know this is going to seem rudimentary, but this is a very good section 
this next series of questions. It is the wisdom of God hidden in a mystery. And a reference here to 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 7. By which wisdom God has made known and revealed to mankind by a certain word which has been given. His essence and will at least so far as it necessary for us in this life so that we thereby recognize sin and the miseries into which we fall through sin and know how and through whom we are freed from these evils so that we as a result rightly recognize and worship God and learn well to arrange and conform our life according to the norm and rule of his commandments. And finally, that we be taught what will be and what is to be expected for us after this life. So, quite broad in scope, from the rudiments all the way to the end things or eschatology, but all of this is that word of God revealed to mankind through, obviously, the written word, through his son, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. And again, I think that this is going to strike you all as rudimentary here as Lutherans. At least I, I hope so. All right, anything at uh, question 35 that's puzzling or interesting? Let's continue on because we will have some, some dialogue to be sure, I think, in the next few questions. Can a man, question 36, can a man by his own knowledge or by the perception of his own reason obtain that knowledge for himself? Okay, now this, ca- this connects with question 35, hopefully in an, in an obvious enough way, that the word of God is the self-revelation of God. And so now this question follows, can a man by his own knowledge or by the perception of his own reason obtain that knowledge for himself? What do you think the answer is going to be? No. <laughs> answer, so great a darkness of the human mind followed upon the fall of our first parents that by itself or of itself, it does not know or understand anything certain or sound of these matters. And a reference to 1 Corinthians 21, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 1.21 and 1 Corinthians 2.14, which I'm now going to read for you because um, they're fairly foundational for this point. Here is... Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, one twenty-one. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So that is to say, let's try to understand Paul, even though his language can strike our ear as a little bit of a riddle. It's, it's not. It's poetic language, but it's clear as can be. And that is that Let's begin with God's wisdom. Okay? And God's wisdom enacted this reality that the world could not know him through wisdom. 
Okay? So the world cannot come to him by its own reason or strength. The world cannot come to him um, based on the powers of understanding that he possesses. That, and that's God's wisdom. He set it up that way. But rather it has pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So that man cannot come to God through his own reason, but God must come to man and does so through the folly, air quotes here, I think Paul's being you know, tongue-in-cheek, the folly of what we preach, which is going to be the foolishness of the cross of Christ and him crucified. So God saves solely by grace, even in this aspect, that he has set it up so that man cannot come to him, cannot work his way to him, cannot think his way to him, but God must rather go to man and does so through the preaching and the preaching of this quote-unquote foolish content of Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, yes, sir? Just a footnote to add to that. Uh, Even though we have been brought to Christ through his grace and the Holy Spirit, uh, it's easy to become complacent. And this business of being brought to the truth through the Scripture is a continuous thing. So Mm -hmm. even if we've come to that, you have to go back. You read the same passages a thousand times, Mm -hmm. and you're reminded over and over again and you need to be yeah. because of the, the sin around us all the time and the pressures and the temptations. It, it, you have to be constantly in the Word or you will lose it. Great point. So faith continually comes by hearing. It comes initially by hearing, but it continually comes by hearing. It's deepened by hearing. It's expanded by hearing. It's sustained by hearing. And that hearing itself, of course, comes from the Word of God. So the Word does everything. It creates the hearing, and then it fills the hearing ear with the content. And also, as we've been meditating on the Proverbs class, and as, as also in the men's study, because they're both on the same theme, we should note that there is a parallel to physical laziness in the spiritual sphere. One can be spiritually lazy, and this can ironically come as an abuse of a strong or good or biblical doctrine of the Word, that then the human nature says, well, since it's the Word doing all the work, all I'm responsible to do is put my derriere in the pew, and it'll happen by magical osmosis. Maybe if I lay my head on a Bible, I'll absorb some of the knowledge too. Uh, No, this is why Jesus admonishes us to pay attention to how we hear. And then he instructs us, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you and still more abundantly. And um, Proverbs is the same exact way, whereas the Father is speaking to the Son He's constantly admonishing him to hear the word, guard the word, grow in understanding of the word, etc. So, your point's well taken. Thank you. Please. I was going to just comment on this, the degree to which God reveals himself. Uh, You know, I think Paul says somewhere in his writings that we now see through a glass dimly. uh, 
God spoke through the prophet Isaiah and said, uh, my ways are not your ways. So we understand we're in some incremental uh, understanding of God, and he gives us enough, I think, uh, for us to know him to the degree we we understand, I mean, that we need it. But if you could comment on that more and uh, and then the... And then we see him face to face, the beatific vision. I mean, are we on a, a slope of, uh, and, and as Neil said, we're, we are to be in the word because it feeds us. And it, that's how we sustain this understanding to the degree that we should have. So if you could just comment on that a little bit. Yeah, maybe it's a complex question. It would take a lot of time to really do um, honor to every aspect of that question, so I'm just not going to be able to. Um, if, I, if I miss the main thrust, let me know. But I think this line from Chemnitz speaks in a general way to your question. Look back at question 35, what is the Word of God, and look at the peculiar way in which Chemnitz answers. He doesn't, you know, what is the word of God? We'd expect him to be like what? The Bible. Okay. But look what he says. What is the word of God? It is the wisdom of God hidden in a mystery. This is a lot of fun, especially for those of, uh, of you able to come to the men's study on Monday night where we're talking, where we see Jesus talking in Matthew 13 about the mystery that has been hidden that is now being revealed. Okay. So that already takes us into a kind of complexity with which we view the scriptures themselves. The Old Testament scriptures contain all manner of very clear testimony of Christ. As he himself says, it is they that speak of me. But that unfolds over time, doesn't it? such that it's there, it's clear, the people of the time know it and believe it, but the fullness of all that it means just continues to expand and expand and expand. So there is a sense in which um, the revelation itself, that is to say the word of God, boy, that was clumsy of me, I think, but the revelation, which is the word of God, is a continuous or ongoing kind of revelation and there is a sense in which, you know, as the, as the potter is molding the clay, he's ever, ever broadening and widening and deepening it so that it can receive more and more. And so, I mean, this obviously kind of breaks the analogy, but that's what God is doing is he's constantly expanding us and deepening us through his word so that we can have more of his word. And the way that Jesus puts this is he says, to the one who has, even more will be given. That's a continuous reality. Okay, so on the one hand, we will confess that the scriptures, and here's kind of the paradox. Remember I like to say that you don't really understand an article of the faith until you understand how it seemingly contradicts itself. And the article, one of the, uh, the article of the scriptures, one of the seeming contradictions here is it is at one and the same time, here's the theological term, perspicuous. Okay. That is to say, it is clear in and of itself, God doesn't talk like my kids do after taking a bite of mashed potatoes and it's unclear what they're saying and it's flying all over you. Uh, that's not how God is. God speaks 
clearly that so his word is perspicuous we'll talk about the scriptures as having perspicuity and that's essential but that doesn't mean we do understand them why is that well there's any number of reasons but chief of which would be our own fallen nature our own reason tainted and destroyed by sin our own distance from god whereby we cannot comprehend the things of god so there's this there's this mystery again i don't i'm probably going to define it clumsily by using a redundant word but there's this mystery of the word in which it is simultaneously clear and simultaneously mysterious or from our vantage point unclear but that's not in fact what it is. Is that okay? So when we're talking about the scriptures at that level, we can talk about the scriptures at that level. And then I think your other question is: Do we grow and develop as a Christ, as Christians um, to receive more and more uh, of the Lord and see Him more and more clearly? Yes, I think so. Absolutely. In fact, uh, Chemnitz is going to get right into that uh, in in the next few pages. But this is what the church has always held and taught and what Paul himself teaches in many places, our Lord also, of course. Um, but it, it is that we are um, ever receiving more and more of the Father's gifts, ever deepening and growing in our faith. Uh, and this is true no matter how old you are. And it isn't, strictly speaking, even a matter of knowledge per se a matter also of emotion and perception and in fact being so the classic psychology would talk about the will the intellect and the emotions there's going to be growth in all of these areas uh, and a maturation all of these areas and yet none of these areas constitute the whole of the person so the soul itself can be deepened and growing um, even if you know it's not like you, you can point and say, hey, I memorized 15 new, you know, you can't, qu- Bible verses, this, like you can't quantify it always. Um, but it is promised to us in the scriptures, this perpetual and continual growth. We do see in a mirror dimly no matter what. And that because, chiefly because of our sinful flesh. But there are some other considerations. I just don't want to take us too far afield. So my takeaway then here is that my prayer should be um, reveal more of yourself to me, Lord. Pray back his promise that to those who have, more will be given. So I should be praying that. Mm-hmm. And I have to confess, I haven't ever prayed that. Reve- you know, reveal more of yourself to me, your yeah, truth. The, the Psalms will really, and you have if you've prayed Psalm 119, for example, um, because it's simultaneously he's praising the Lord for his commandments and his statutes and his word and his wisdom. But then he's continuing to also pray, teach me your word, teach me your ways. If I had known these things more fully, I would not have fallen, etc., etc. So uh, Psalm 119 really is um, maybe the maybe the expression of this whole theology we've been talking about, semi-abstract, it's the expression of that embodied in prayer to God. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, right behind you, Barry. Sorry, I just doxed you. Prayer also, um, and what I've come to realize, and again, I'll borrow is that really the best.
best mental health is living with that tension of not knowing and knowing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how can you accept the not knowing? Because we're never going to know it all until we meet God face to face. Yeah. Um, in that perfection. And and then the other thing that I was thinking is this is exactly where I don't know Victor may on this part I don't know but when I went to New Mexico and I wrote to you about my struggles there and and with the Lutheran Church and I settled on Methodist um, and this is precisely the biggest difference I discovered between Methodism and Lutheranism um, because up above their altar it was. Um, you know, uh, the real presence of the body and blood of Jesus Christ as we're sitting and taking the sacrament. This as often, they had that always posted everywhere. And I went to a church where they did it every week. I didn't like how he presented it because he would say, come get the juice. And that always... Oh, that's not good. Oh, that just riled me every time. But I liked him. I knew him. So I had to overlook him. But... Um, um, is in Methodists, they, they uphold the rationale of man. Mm-hmm. And they say that, I studied their catechism, you know, and, and they say that we are, that that's to be admired. Mm-hmm. And, and I just couldn't buy that one because I know that, you know, my best is filthy rags. Yeah, great point. Great point. That's a, that's a good transition into First Corinthians Two fourteen, which is the second verse uh, cited here by Chemnitz, and this one, you'll see how this echoes with your point. Saint Paul writes, "The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned." So let's do just a little bit closer diagnosis. The natural person does not accept, that is, he rejects the things of the Spirit of God. So you're talking about a natural human being in a fallen state. You're not talking about a Christian. You're talking about an unbeliever. And the Holy Spirit says yes, and the flesh says, the sinful flesh says, that's insane. No. That's not rational. Well, is the Holy Spirit unrational or is the natural man irrational? Obviously, the Spirit's not irrational, so it's the natural man who is irrational. Okay. That is to say, his reason is deformed, corrupted, it's functioning, but in a perverse sort of way. And in a way that's antithetical to the Spirit of God. So then we learn that the things of the Spirit are, in fact, it's not just like he doesn't accept them passively, like, yeah, no, I don't think so. That's not the response. But rather, he sees them as foolish. So the Word of God is foolish or folly to the natural man. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So there's the conundrum and also the biblical anthropology on fallen man, that man is incapable of grasping or coming to the revelation of God 
on his own. God must reveal himself to man, and he must overcome man's own sinful nature in order to do so. Okay? Uh, I see a couple of hands. Okay, one in the back for efficiency's sake, and we'll come up front. On this subject of uh, does not know or understand, um, upon the fall of our first parents, um, man is in that condition. And, but it also says, um, well, also on the subject of seeming contradictions, the idea that it's written that the knowledge, the apple of the knowledge of good and evil. Is that correct? I'm sorry, could you repeat that last part? The apple of the knowledge, or the tree yes. of, of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. So the idea that having had the fruit of that tree, there is now knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. What then did they have knowledge of, if anything, before? And then simply having knowledge of good and evil, okay, you still have to choose between the two, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then this also idea of a little bit of knowledge can be really dangerous because you think you know what nah, you don't right. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, anyway, that seems like an apparent contradiction that is worth exploring. Okay, I, I, I was kind of tracking with you, but I'm I'm just sorry. I'm, okay. I must be I'll, dense this I'll, morning. What's I'll, the? I'll try again. So he's saying that because of the fall of our first parents, we do not know or understand oh, anything about these things, and yet the fall itself was a revelation of knowledge. Yeah, and now we don't know. Yeah. That, okay. So. Okay. Sorry, it took me a minute there. Yeah, there's there, and there are a lot of different takes on this, but. I think a take that is very attractive is in Hebrew idiom, to know is really to experience. So, you know, a husband knows his wife and should not know another woman is to experience. And there's a sense in which it's to experience good and evil. If, again, it really helps us to cleanse ourselves of an evolutionary worldview here. Adam and Eve weren't nunces, and now finally we've gotten evolved to the point of uh, really being intelligent homo sapiens. In fact, it's probably the opposite. We've only degraded along with the world itself degrading, wearing out like a garment, ourselves included. Okay, so what does the serpent do? He actually, it's not a matter of head knowledge that he gives them because they know good and evil. God says do this and it is very, you know, he creates and he gives and he says it's very good. They know what good is. They know what evil is, de facto. You know that it's the disordering of those, of the things he's ordered or the contradiction of the things he's stated. They know it's evil uh, to eat of the tree that he has forbidden them. You know, again, they're not naive. They get this probably even more clearly than we do. I also think they're not like, well, what's death? Oh, I don't know. No, I think they have a very clear idea of what death is. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam doesn't go like, what is that? He knows very clearly what that is, and he knows he's not to do it, and he knows that doing so would be evil. It would be a contradiction of God's word and goodness and ordering. Okay, so they already know 
good and evil, but they haven't experienced good and evil. And it's the and it's the serpent who taps into this, and it's just pure deceit and lies. And you know, I, I suppose if you want to go the head knowledge route, this is this is one way to go. They already knew good. That is to say, they were already experiencing good. You can make that work. All he gave them in the deal was the knowledge of evil, which again I would say is the experience of evil. And that's probably more what's, what's at stake. There are some deeper ironies there I won't go into, but the fact that they want to be like God is in and of itself not a bad thing. <laughs> they should have asked him instead of trying to take it. This is one of the strange, wondrous graces of God that, so what is, their, what is, their, what is at the core of their sin? If you eat of it, you will be like gods or like God. Okay, that can be taken in a very wrong way. But what is the entire project of God? Make us like him. So, it, you know, I, in, a, in a certain sense, you can view this by, in so many different angles. It's just, it's not exhaustible. But one angle that you can view this at is man sinfully tried to steal that which, if he would have just asked, God would have given. You want to be as gods? I would give that to you if you just asked. Don't take. Why would you rebel? Right? So there's one of the wonderful things. You wanted more knowledge? I would have given it to you. Um, So in exactly in grasping for this forbidden knowledge, do they lose knowledge? And that's the nature of the law, the nature of divine wrath and punishment, is it's always symmetrical and balanced and organic. Okay, so we could meditate, I think, forever on that, but maybe we'll just have to let that be sufficient. I have a brother who is constantly asking questions about spiritual things Mm -hmm. of me and challenging answers, and it can go on and on and on. And over numerous times, I finally said, you know, faith is a gift. Mm -hmm. And if you really want the gift of faith, how about just... Asking God for the gift of faith and putting yourself in a place where you can hear His word—is that okay, or is that sure. just? Yeah, I mean, I don't you, see it seems like you have to set a limit if it's not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. And people want to play games uh, as like it's an intellectual game, and they just want to play with. They want to systematize your faith so that then they can play games with it and try to find contradictions and loopholes and. And it's just all a big intellectual game. I would say, I would say, yeah, don't waste your time there. Just say, hey, if, um, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Keep playing these games and you won't be. End of the conversation. I, th- I um, remember that this point is the only point that's total depravity that the Lutheran embraces of the five points of capitalism. It's this one right here that it's all God calling us, and we're totally dead. We cannot, there's nothing in us that be able to conjugate the wisdom or the knowledge of God. It's God all himself. And I even learned now, even going to the Lutheran services, that's, that's, what, that's what it is. It's, it's coming to church and meeting God and not the other way around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I just yeah, great, that this yeah. is common. 
Yeah, thanks for that. So if you look at uh, Calvinism, you might know the acronym, the TULIP acronym. So the T stands for total depravity, and that's the one point of Calvinism we're in full agreement on. And by total depravity, it's not meant that we're as bad as we could possibly be, that we're all demonic zombies or something like that. It just means that the total man, the totality of man, has been corrupted by sin. So there's no spark of divine light or um, part of us that isn't corrupted by sin. My will isn't free. My soul isn't free. My uh, my, uh, reason isn't free. There's nothing that's been left free or untainted. The whole man, the totality of man, has been corrupted, thus total depravity. And so on that point, um, Calvinists and Lutherans are in full agreement. And by the way, so is Augustine, so is the Western tradition, um, Orthodox tradition. Augustine was once a free will guy, and then he, because uh, he's coming out of Manichaeanism, which is kind of very deterministic in a wrong way, and in his rejection against that, what do you do when you reject the one error? You go into the opposite error. So, so Augustine becomes this giant free will guy until he meets who? Pelagius, who takes free will to its logical conclusion. Well, if it's all up to your decision, it's just all up to you, period. It's all up to everybody, period. If our will is free, then it's left untainted. Then anyone can make a decision for God. And Augustine goes, oh, holy smokes, I've made a big problem here. I've, I've erred grievously in my rejection of Manichaean determinism. I've gone full bore free will. Now Pelagius has shown me the error of that way, and Augustine comes back. And the Lutheran position is fundamentally Augustinian on the question of the, the, the will being bound And it must be penetrated and set free by an external word of Christ, by his spirit. All right. Anything else hanging out? Okay, on we go then. So, uh, right. Bottom of page 39. We've quoted and meditated on the two... Scriptures from 1 Corinthians that are cited here by Chemnitz. Let me just reread the section very quickly. So great a darkness of the human mind followed upon the fall of our first parents that by itself or of itself it does not know or understand anything certain or sound of these matters. You can also detect there like number one level is ignorance, number two level is active resistance. So, you know, if it's free will decision theology, like, you can't make a decision on something that you don't know doesn't exist. Does that make sense? I can't go to the fridge and and say, am I going to have lasagna or leftover chicken if I don't know the lasagna even exists? It's just chicken. That's it. Okay? So, also, no pagan can say, well, I'm not going to worship this spirit or this God or this ancestor. I'm going to worship Christ. They don't even know of Christ. You see, so the first level of bondage, if you will, is the bondage of ignorance. Okay? And then the second would be that once Christ is proclaimed, if left to human rationality and human nature alone, that will simply be rejected. The Holy Spirit must intervene. Okay, continuing on with Chemnitz. For in spiritual things, the human mind is not only blind, 
But Scripture declares that it is darkness itself. Um, John one five often in, often interpreted the darkness the the light came into the world and the darkness has not overcome it, which is fine. Um, but it can also be translated. There's equal validity to both. The darkness has not understood it or comprehended it. Okay. So that's the sense in which Chemnitz is taking it here uh, in quoting 1 John 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not comprehended it. And then he cites Ephesians 5, 8 where St. Paul writes, For at one time you were darkness. So there's the totality of our depravity. It's not like you were darkness except for your will, which was light. You were darkness, except for your reason, which is the one light that God left. No, you were darkness, all of you. Individually, corporately, all of you. For at one time you were darkness, St. Paul writes, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So again, Chemnitz is right in saying that the scriptures declare the fallen human mind to be not only blind, but in fact darkness itself. He continues, Man indeed has some obscure knowledge, as by a dream, that there is a God who must also be worshipped. Okay. Thus the popularity of monotheism and even just religion in general can prove and bolster this point. And this is really like what Paul is talking about also in Romans 1 and 2, that Virtually everybody recognizes there's a God, and then they reject this God and start to worship the creation rather than the creator in one way, shape, or form. So that's what Chemnitz means by the you know, fallen man has some obscure knowledge as by a dream that there is a God who must also be worshipped. He continues, but who and what kind of God this is and how he wants to be worshipped, he knows not at all. Indeed, indulging his own thoughts and wisdom, he engages in pure idolatry. Romans 1, 21 through 23. Thus, human nature still indeed has a little part of the divine law written in the heart regarding some outward and civil functions, but of the true knowledge of sin and of the true worship of God, human reason, without the light of the word of God, knows or understands nothing whatever. Rather, the whole doctrine of the gospel is a mystery unknown and hidden to human reason and wisdom. But God, coming forth out of his secret dwelling place, moved by great mercy toward lost mankind, by a sure and special word, given partly immediately, partly immediately, has made known and revealed that mystery to his church, which, namely the mystery, he also confirmed with notable testimonies and miracles, lest one could doubt this truth. 
Uh, Mark 16.20 reads this way, And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs, that is, miracles. So as the apostles go out, they're preaching the word of God. How, does anybody, how can anybody be sure that this is the word of God? Because it's accompanied by things that only God could do. The same types of healings and miracles and casting out of demons that Jesus himself did. Okay, so a lengthy answer to this question, but an important one, and as you can see, one that strikes at the heart of uh, Reformational theology, but also the church's Augustinian theology, and that is, what can man by nature do for himself to approach or come to God? And the answer is, nothing. God must reveal himself through the scriptures, alleviating in the first place ignorance and in the second place resistance. Those are the two things that God must overcome. And by resistance, maybe that's an understating. Uh, The propensity of the natural man to full-on reject and declare as foolish the things of God. That must be overcome by God himself through his word and spirit. Okay, we've got one more question that is uh, of a similar vein, and that's question 37. Can anyone, as some think, be saved in his religion and faith without the word of God, but having formed a good intention? Ah, so this was around in Roman Catholicism at the time of the Reformation, and they've really only doubled down on this point. And that's the idea that It doesn't matter if someone's a Christian or not as long as they have a good heart or a good intention. Yikes. Well, who has a good heart or a good intention? No one. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's see what Chemnitz's answer to this is. By no means. Okay. (laughs) For God says only of his word that it is the word of God of life. That is, apart from the word and knowledge of the word, you cannot have life. The word must come to you and bestow upon you life because it is the word of life and that's it. All right. Let me see if I noted anything else here that was uh, of particular value. No. Continuing on with Chemnitz's answer, But scripture declares of all other sects conceived beyond, outside of, or contrary to the word of God, that they are without Christ, outside the promises of the covenant, having no hope, and without God in the world. All right, lots of scriptures cited here and before. Trying to glimpse my notes and see if I thought any were... I think I thought that this would all be self-evident enough to you all, that apart from Christ, there's no salvation. Didn't think that'd be a controversial point. I'm glad it isn't. What did you say the two things about? Ignorance and our, the, the natural man's propensity to see the things for God, of God as foolishness. So his rejection. So ignorance and rejection must both, both be overcome. And by the way, that's a, uh, that's a two-fold aspect that Luther highlights in the bondage of the will. Okay, Chemnitz ends his answer in this way, and flesh and blood does not reveal this Christ, but the Father in the Word and through the Word. 
So you remember our Lord's response to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Simon Barjona, but my Father who is in heaven. That is to say, you didn't conclude these things or deduce these things or infer these things in and of yourself, nor did any other human being come up with these things and give them to you, but God himself has revealed these things to you. Okay, so that is the word of God. I think in a, treated in a very wonderfully, wonderful way. We highlight the mystery and the mysterious nature of that revelation. And then we move on concretely to a discussion of the Holy Scripture. Before we do, any concluding thoughts, questions, things you'd like to add? I'm just thinking about, uh, on your previous uh, paragraphs, regarding <clears throat> the witness to the Word um, and people rejecting it, um, tying that into the miracles that Jesus performed in, in his ministry with the disciples and so on, and the modern present-day person saying, well, where are your miracles now to prove that any of this is true? Mm-hmm. And the first thing we, we can think of is the resurrection. Sure. Nothing is more documented and more proven by both Scripture that tie into historical record than any other event in history, if you, especially if you study archaeology, uh, Roman history, and the rest, and tie it to what Scripture says. You've got a good witness there. Of course, they reject it, but uh, mm-hmm. the point is that, that that miracle is so profound that it, um, it is the, the proof we can... We can go back to in front of the unbeliever and say, all right, <laughs> look at history. Yeah. Now look at what we say in our scripture. How can you reject this? Yeah, yeah it's a good point. And I think um, we should bolster ourselves with what our Lord says uh, toward the end of the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And he says, if they will not, remember the rich man says, well, send Lazarus to go tell my brothers so that they don't come to this place. And the response given is, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe even should someone be raised from the dead. So what does that mean? That means that to the human, and of course, who would know this? Only God. That the word of God is more sure and more convincing than even the obvious to the eye miracle of someone dying and rising. And we know this, of course, because it's fulfilled in Christ, and I think that's your point. Um, but we also know this because whenever you see something, you, you always go, is that a miracle or not? Did I just see a miracle or not? Seems to be a miracle. Is there a naturalistic explanation? Was I mistaken? Was the doctor mistaken? Was the x-ray mistake? I don't know. And so we can easily talk ourselves out of a miracle, much easier, in fact, than we can talk ourselves out of the plain testimony of the scriptures, particularly as we see them fulfilled in Christ Jesus concretely and irrefutably. And at the crucifixion, at Jesus' death, people came out of the graves, people saw it, and they still rejected it. Yeah. 
Yeah, great point. So I'm not one of these that's at all convinced that, well, if only we had the apostolic miracles, we'd have this great renewal of faith. I, I actually don't believe that for a second. It would just be criticized, debunked, not believed, thought to be a scam. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think that it's... I don't think that the point our Lord's making at the end of that story is necessarily that the word works like magic. I mean, there is a component in which the the Holy Spirit is effective in and through that word. I'm not denying that in any way, shape, or form. But again, I think what our Lord is, is ultimately hinting at is the fulfillment of the scriptures in his person is convincing enough. Because when you look at the Old Testament scriptures and you start dating them back, you start going, this was 400 years ago, this was 1,000 years ago, this was 2,100 years ago, and you see the things that are prophesied and fulfilled in the person of Christ, how on earth can you come to any other conclusion? I mean, that is, and that is the testimony of the scriptures. And by the way, if you, if you have an eye for this, it'll change the way you read the New Testament, because the New Testament is basically a commentary on the Old Testament. And it, it's particularly true. I mean, read Matthew with an eye to this. Matthew is going back to these ancient scriptures and going, look at how they are fulfilled. How else do you explain this? And that is actually a stronger argument than your own lion eyes telling you that that dead dude is now alive. And I think that that's as much our Lord's point as anything else, is that there's actually a strength in the scriptures. It's not just they work by magic and open the eyes. Clearly the Holy Spirit does that. I'm not denying that. But that the actual content and mechanics of the argument of scripture are more sure and certain in effect than believing a miracle happened. Uh, continuing what Neil was saying, and I was thinking this before I want to ask this, or make this point and ask for your comment. In the scriptures, I think it's in John, people are acknowledging Christ's miracles. He did all these things, but right. some are saying, this is by Beelzebub. Yeah, right. And others are saying, no, this is the Christ. We think this is the Christ. Mm-hmm. Why does the human mind do that? Can you make it, I, you know, we mm-hmm. have some explanation. Mm-hmm. Can you give some more explanation to yeah, that? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, again, I think that there's this kind of skepticism among humanity, period, okay, and that's just what it is, and we should be skeptical of of that, of charlatanism and that kind of thing. Uh, But yeah, these people, like, I mean, they would see their relative healed, but that wasn't necessarily confirmation in their minds. But this is a point that Jesus and then his apostles and his, well, his disciples always bring up, is if if Christ is doing the things that only God can do, like, okay, you're going to say he's not the Messiah? Fine. You're going to say he's preaching lies? Fine. But then why does God bless that by doing great miracles through him? That's the argument. 
So you remember the you remember the man who's born blind from birth? This is an outrageous exchange. It's one of the funniest exchanges I think in all the New Testament because this guy's got some attitude, and you remember you'd really like him. So <laughs> you remember the. The, the scribes and Pharisees keep questioning him about all this before they excommunicate him. It's like, what, do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> it's just the greatest, spiciest retort. Um, but, but the whole point there is like, the guy says, look, whether he's the Messiah or not, I don't know. All I know is that I was born blind from birth and now I see. Right? Like, what is, this is not rocket science. <laughs> it's such a great exchange. But that's, uh, that is the way the miracles function. And that's why, you know, Jesus will at times, uh, I'm thinking specifically of John's gospel, say, if you do not believe on account of the words themselves, believe on account of the deeds that I am doing. That's, that's the argument he's making. Okay? Is, all right, you don't believe what I'm saying? Believe it when this dead person is risen right in front of your eyes. Okay? Now believe what I'm saying. Okay? And all that's well and good and true, and that's his message to those first century people, and we can have our faith increased and strengthened by those things to be sure. Um, but yes, ultimately what he says in that account of Lazarus and the rich man, I think is all the more poignant that the lasting testimony he gives to humanity not miracles right in front of their face per se, but that all of these, how do you literally, what, how can you account for the fulfillment of scriptures that were written hundred years, thousand, or hundreds of years, a thousand years, two thousand, how can you account for these things now fulfilled in Christ? You can't. And, it, and if you're going to reject that, then you're going to reject all other knowledge, all other truth, all other history. And you're going to end it really simply revealing the spiritual uh, insanity into which you've fallen. Okay, was there another hand? I thought I saw a hand waving. No, I was just going to comment that uh, when you talk to unbelievers, oftentimes, and you're here in society, when you're speaking of miracles, they'll fall back on mysticism, aliens, um, mm. they come up with... Anything but God. Anything but God. Anything just, but God. And, oh, yeah, well, we've seen this and seen that, but, you know, we've heard, we see these flying saucers, I don't know. Ali- yeah, aliens, seated want. the world. And really, that is the attraction and the appeal of all that stuff, ultimately. I mean, it goes beyond just mere well, it's curiosity. It's to them. They think, well, there's... They, they, Answers are hidden there. Yeah. That's where we've got to find out more about that. I mean, to the Christian, most of this stuff is just kind of like, I don't know, mildly a fascinating. Joke. Yeah, you kind of feel silly, but, you know, you still sort of pay attention. And, um, but anyway, it, well, and then I think there's, there are some Christians that come straight out and say this is all the work of the demons and just exactly. a cult. Uh, because, and and there's, some, there's some truth to that, to be sure, because what are people seeking in their desperation to find aliens or intelligent life or theories of how the human race? They're seeking another worldview so that they can reject God. I mean, this, by the way, is where you've really got to analyze evolution. Like, be a theologian for a second and analyze evolution. Does it follow the actual scientific principles? Is it observable, repeatable, 
No, that's no. why it's a theory. So that conclusion is already outside of the realm of science proper. It's an assumption. Now, view it theologically. What does that assumption give you? It gives you an entire other frame and worldview that is incompatible with the frame and worldview of Christianity. And I hate to say I told you so, but there are many, many examples of Christians who embraced evolution, and lo and behold, they lost their Christianity because they are, in fact, incompatible. And you need to recognize it as a new creation story and the foundation of a new religion. If you don't view it that way, you're not viewing it rightly as it is. Okay, so yeah, this is um, maybe, a, maybe a fair place to just wrap up our conversation for today since we're nearing the close anyway. Next week, let's jump into Holy Scripture. And I want to tantalize you a little bit. So as you flip forward to 41, you're going to see the true ancient Catholic religion or faith. So we're going to deal with um, Holy Scripture. And um, if you flip on to, well, just page 47 for the sake of it, we're going to be spending a lot of time with Chemnitz leading us along through some stuff you probably already know, but it's time to dust it off and sharpen it up. And we're going to talk about the canonical books of the Old and New Testaments and the way in which we can organize those in our thinking and our mind and come to a more dynamic understanding of the Bible that sits in our, in our hands and how it didn't just you know, fall from heaven one afternoon, but was constructed over uh, you know, millennia, just to speak quickly, and then is nuanced and dynamic and interactive in some ways we might not uh, readily recognize. So we're going to do a deep dive into all of that. Uh, Not next week. Next week's the week of Christmas. Can you believe that? The week after that, I hope to be recovering. (laughs) And then that means that uh, that third week is when we'll jump back into this and really do a deep dive into the scriptures. The Lord be with you.